Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this muggy late May day in the nation's capital where we all wish we were as good at conducting interviews as Charlemagne the God. I'm Alex Rorty, political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you from my humble abode in Washington, D.C. Today, I am overjoyed to be joined by Francesca Chambers, a White House correspondent for McClatchy and, as I learned this week, a master of the forum email fishing for information from sources. Francesca, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. That's a pretty high compliment. Maybe not a master yet, but I'm working on it. I think you're a master. You're a master compared to me, anyway, at it. And of course, we are pleased to welcome back to the show Adam Walner, McClatchy DC's political editor, who returns to us after a few days of R&R over the Memorial Day holiday. Adam, what'd you do? You know, I just kind of laid low. I think a lot of people are sort of hesitant to take their vacation days right now because they're like, there's nothing for me to do. I can't go anywhere. But having an extra long weekend definitely did the trick. Just a couple extra days to lay around and watch, you know, more Netflix and Hulu, basically just what I've been doing for the last two months anyway. So definitely felt very refreshed coming into this week. So, you know, I, I, I'm feeling like I have a lot of energy for this for this podcast today. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll see so, about that. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, so watch Maybe, out. Hopefully you can deliver on that <laughs> promise. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. Coming up, we are going to assess Joe Biden's relationship with the African-American community a week after his infamous gaffe that, quote, you ain't black if you're supporting Donald Trump. It's a remark that subsequently rippled through the political ecosystem and raised fresh questions about whether the former vice president is going to get the kind of overwhelming support from black voters that a Democratic nominee for president absolutely has to have. But first, even by Donald Trump's standards, his conduct in the last several weeks has been bizarre and irresponsible. In the middle of what might be the country's worst crisis since the Great Depression and World War II, he has launched a sustained and vociferous campaign accusing MSNBC host Joe Scarborough of murdering a former staff member in their congressional office. Let's not mince words. The accusation is unfounded and nothing more than a conspiracy theory. And it comes amid a flurry of other rants from the president and those close to him, including an ever-expanding list of grievances that includes everything from voting by mail to making fun of Biden's decision to wear a mask in public. The most pressing political question, though, Francesca, and this is a political podcast, is whether any of this hurts him in the upcoming election. Because, of course, this is not a new topic of discussion with the president. He has said outrageous things at all times that have led to a flurry of predictions of his impending political doom that, of course, have turned out all to be false. When he said those things in the past, we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. The question now is, we are in the middle of a pandemic. Is there going to be a greater political fallout or is there at least greater risk for the president for saying these kinds of things? So to your point, he has been tweeting these sorts of things since before the 2016 presidential election, all the way up until now. And, you know, it's just a different variation every every few weeks or however you know long it is in between, like the latest outrage over something that he said on Twitter. And it has not had a substantive effect. Even if you, you, people feel like, even his supporters, like, wish he hadn't said that, right? At the end of the day, the conservatives in both the movement and outside of Washington, Republicans, do think that he has the best policies to move the country forward, and they have continued to stand behind him all along. And we've talked about this before, but I will again assert this. This election really is, based on everything that we've seen, looking to be more of a referendum on Donald Trump than about Joe Biden. But when I say referendum, I don't mean on his tweeting and the things that he's saying on Twitter. Really, the policies that he has put in place, particularly when it comes to the economy, and there is a wide expectation within the Republican Party and the Trump administration that this election will be about the economy once we get to November. And the ball is in his court and his administration 
Arbitrations Court to push that economic message and make it one that, that voters want to come out and support. There's no doubt that the president has, despite, I mean, look, this is a guy who started his political career, at least the, the, the most recent version of it, suggesting that President Obama wasn't born in America, right? That didn't stop him from winning the Republican nomination. It did not stop him from winning the presidency. So there is no doubt that despite all of the predictions that these sort of comments would end him politically, those have not been borne out. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I guess, you know, my, my question is, Francesca, and I, you make a great point that his reelection is going to rise and fall on the state of the economy and the perceptions of his ability to handle it. Adam, I think my question is, are you able to make the case that you are laser focused on the economy if you are spending part of your day, whether it's on Twitter or even in press conferences, accusing a cable news TV host of murder and whether or not that 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 at least at some level distracts from from that message, particularly, I mean, when it, it just seems like it's born out of a rivalry that he has with with Joe Scarborough more than anything. Right. Yeah. And I think you know one reason that these comments have been getting more attention and I think have even caused some consternation among Republicans even more than usual, you know, to your point, Alex, is that this is, you know, he's it's not that these tweets are anything new or that these sort of attacks are new. This is just kind of who, who he is, and we've become accustomed to that over the years. But when it is at a time when you know you know deaths from coronavirus have now crossed you know a hundred thousand, uh, when you know the economy is is you know in a tailspin right now, that the president's attention seems to be to be elsewhere. And to Francesca's point on you know the referendum, you know if you know if this does remain a, re- a referendum, you know both on Trump's accomplishments, on his policies, but also I think on you know his conduct and the way that he has handled himself in the White House, because that has also you know turned off some voters, you know, from him over the past few years, if that remains the case, you know, he doesn't have a great shot of winning re-election in November. You know, he really needs to find a way to turn this into more of a one-on-one battle between him and Joe Biden. And, and while Joe Biden certainly has gotten, you know, his his fair share of the attacks over the past few weeks, you know, I don't think that's even been among the top, you know, three or five you know, things that Trump has said that, that have really registered with, with people o- over the past week. So, you know, again, he's just sort of allowing Joe Biden for the most part just to kind of skate by. And, you know, I know later we're, you know, we're going to talk about uh, Joe Biden's comments last week about black voters, but, you know, even, t- you know, today it hasn't even been quite a full week since then. You know, that's kind of disappeared almost from, from the political conversation at this point. And, you know, that, that's, you know, that's the sort of gaffe in a normal environment that I think maybe would have had more of a shelf life if, if Trump was able to sort of, you know, be a little more laser focused on, you know, pointing out the faults of his opponents rather than just sort of, you know, kind of firing off whatever kind of comes to mind, it, it seems, uh, you know, every day it's, it's, it's something new where he's deciding to, to aim his fire. Clearly, you know, he, you know, he also knows and his campaign knows that this is a way for him to sort of fire up his base. But the question for him is, you know, you know, he has his base, but he, you know, he has inroads that he needs to make with undecided and persuadable voters between now and November. I'm not sure if anything that he's done in the past week is really going to help him in that regard. He, he still has a way to go, obviously, before November. But I think as long as the focus is on Trump's conduct in office, his tweets, you add in his response to the coronavirus, how he's handling the economy. You know, if this remains a referendum on on him and Joe Biden is almost like an afterthought, I, I don't think that necessarily bodes well for, for his chances. Well, okay. Spoiler alert for our discussion later about about Joe Biden and, and his own gaffe there. But no, I mean that that's an interesting point. I mean we we've talked about it on the show, and it's certainly been a topic of discussion that it doesn't seem as if the Trump campaign has found a singular message to really go after Joe Biden on. And that's been a problem. And then in some ways, Adam, as you point out, I mean 
Trump seems more interested, again, in attacking Joe Scarborough than he does his actual opponent in this race, which I'm no, you know, genius political strategist, but that seems like there's a, there's a fault in, in there. Francesca, let me, let me ask you, and let, let's just step back just for a moment, because, you know, I think there are two ways to look at the president's behavior, in particular, I think his tweets and the political effect of that. We, we've talked about it, we opened the show. I mean, it almost seems like every month we get a new prediction of some impending political doom for the president, usually tied to something he tweeted or said, and, and it hasn't been true. But it's also been true that he has had a sustained and an early level of unpopularity in his presidency in a way that no modern president has rivaled. And I think there is an alternate version in some, you know, on Earth 2, where if the President Trump could rein in his, his tweets and some of his conduct by 10 or 15 percent, I mean, in theory, we could have a much more popular president than, than we do now. My point is, I mean, there is some political cost to this. It's just not as, as bad for the president as some pundits like to make it out to be. Well, and his campaign, by the way, is leaning in to these tweets and they're not going out and trying to separate themselves at this point. They've released a new national ad in which they call the president a bull in a China shop. They say he's not always polite, but he gets the job done. And so going back to what I was saying before, right, like that is sort of the message that they are that they're trying to push is that like he gets the job done even if you don't like him and even if he says stuff on Twitter that you don't like. I mean, they're coming right out and saying that. Alex, you and I were, were discussing this briefly yesterday about whether or not that's like a signal maybe to the to you know, the rest of the party, that that's how they should be messaging the president as well as we had into this election and where they're at least trying to take it. When you talk about uh, his conduct and there being a referendum on his conduct, that's a case for Joe Biden's campaign to successfully or not successfully make, right? Like they are the ones who would have to elevate this behavior in a way to get voters to say, like, it doesn't matter what other policies that President Trump is pursuing. This conduct is just not acceptable for a president of the United States. And it really, I do believe, will remain to be seen up until we get to election day. Like the, the polls are very close in a lot of battleground states, and, and it may not present itself until the actual ballots come in. That message you just mentioned, Francesca, basically, you know, it takes a jerk to get things done, right? I mean, I felt like that was something that we started to see before the pandemic, that the Trump campaign was, was signaling that was going to be something it pursued right. as it sought re-election. Of course, everything has been scrambled. Just like everything else, that message has been scrambled because of the coronavirus outbreak. Adam, I'm interested. I mean, look, again, on, on this idea that even if the bottom doesn't fall out for, for President Trump, uh, because until that happens, I think we, we all need to stop predicting it. But he, he does seem like if you if you look at this objectively at the politics of it, I mean, he is taking a, a number of unpopular positions right now. I haven't seen a poll about whether or not people think the president should be focusing on accusations of murder uh, against <laughs> against Joe Scarborough. But I'm guessing that the vast majority of the public doesn't want the president's attention to be there. On other matters, on things like masks, which the president has, has kind of rejected personally and made fun of Joe Biden for wearing a mask in public. Look, the public is overwhelmingly supportive of people wearing masks in, in public right now. On something like vote by mail, which is, I think, getting a lot more attention, the public is overwhelmingly supportive of, of making it easier to vote, to vote by mail, and, and yet the president calls it uh, basically a conspiracy to rig the election of Democrats. It seems like on issue after issue after issue in this, the, the president is taking positions that appeal only to a very small slice of the electorate. And, and I think it follows. That's not helpful for a guy who, who I think his reelection is already in serious peril. 
I think really, I mean, what this comes down to is, you know, if you just look at Trump's actions, whether it's from the past week, the past month, you know, since he took office, you know, what has he really done to expand his base? And to me, it's not clear there is really anything that he has done to, to do that. And you, you, know, you look at the 2018 midterm results uh, where Democrats obviously had, you know, a great election and, you know, a lot of that caught up to them because, you know, certainly he can try and follow, you know, his kind of very narrow path that he he, he took in 2016 to win re-election where you're losing the popular vote, but you're eking out wins in these key battleground states of, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, get the Electoral College victory. But right now, you know, the president is very much on defense, both in, you know, if you look at it structurally from, you know, the, the coronavirus, from the economy, you know, some of the polls that have come out, you know, he's, he's trailing in not only, you know, a lot of the battleground states that we have, have been talking about, kind of the, those core groups, but all of a sudden, you know, states like Georgia, states like even Ohio or, or Iowa are, are potentially starting to look more competitive than we thought. And Republicans are realizing this. You know, I think to your to your point about Joe Scarborough, that crossed the line for a lot of Republicans. I thought it was notable that Liz Cheney, you know, a very powerful Republican in the House, not, you know, certainly not known as, as a never Trumper, you know, sort of unprompted in an interview said, you know, th- you know, he should not be focusing on this right now. You know, Mitt Romney and maybe some other Republicans that you'd you know, expect to to uh, to criticize the president did that as well. But you expect to hear that from Mitt Romney. You don't expect to hear it from Liz Cheney. To, exactly. To, to exactly. Point. So. So. Right. So it, it just, you know, ultimately, though, I think, you know, the things that we need to, to kind of keep our eye on or if you, you know you want to get a sense for how this election is going to play out in November is not even so much, you know, what the president happens to be tweeting on a given day, but just sort of big picture. You know, by the time we get to, you know, say Labor Day, what state is the economy in? You know, where are we with the coronavirus? And, and another big thing, too, that I think, you know, a lot of Republicans are a little frustrated with the Trump campaign about is that, you know, they, they're sitting on just piles of money right now. And I think at this point, everyone expected that they would already be unleashing a, a barrage of, of ads against Joe Biden. And we've seen that, you know, start a little bit. Um, but we've seen, you know, some reporting, you know, even from Politico this week that, you know, they have such a huge cash advantage over Joe Biden. That's one of the, the biggest factors working in their favor right now. Why are you not taking advantage of that, trying to focus on Joe Biden, you know, not Joe Scarborough, not voting by mail, you know, not whatever else, you know, happens to pop into the president's head on a given day, but really start redefining him this summer. I mean, that's what Barack Obama did to, to Mitt Romney in 2012 to, to great success. You know, if he does start to do that, you know, I think that that is one, you know, factor that could sort of alter the, the course of where things seem, seem to be heading right now as well. In addition to just sort of the, the structural, you know, economic and, and health factors that, you know, in a lot of ways are outside of the, the president's control. What I would say about the president and and what his campaign is thinking, though, is they don't feel that they need to expand the base. They feel that they just need to turn out more of the base than they did. They feel that they did not have a very good operation in 2016 when they were very scrappy. There weren't that many you know, people working for the actual national campaign. They didn't have any experience in politics whatsoever. And they were able to win I mean, by the hair of their chinny chin chin, but they were able to win then. And so now their belief is, and whether, you know, not saying that this is how it's going to play out, but their belief is, is that with a much better operation and a significant cash advantage, as you pointed out, like this time around, they are able to just collect more data on their types of voters and turn those people out, that they'll be able to expand the map in a way by turning out more people in states, right, in additional states that weren't even in play for them. They use an example like Minnesota, where they basically had like no staff at all, and they came very close. They're putting a significant investment into that state this time around and believe that they will be able to flip it as a result. 
Right. And I would just say as one uh, potential counter to that, the Trump campaign yesterday started laying down some new uh, TV ad buys in a handful of states. And, and, you know, and they're all in states that, that Trump carried in, in 2016. So, you know, you know, they, they do talk a lot about expanding into states like Minnesota, New Hampshire, New Mexico, and others. As of right now, at least they're not spending there. And in fact, they're starting to spend in a state like Ohio, which he won by eight, Iowa, which he won by nine. But again, just comes down to the point that, you know, for, for Trump to win, he's probably going to more or less have to follow the same path to victory that he had in 2016. And that remains a viable path for him. It just seems like, you know, kind of by the day, you know, when we're seeing these actions from the campaigns on where they're spending, we're seeing some of the latest polls. You know, Joe Biden right now seems to have at least more paths to victory, whether or not they're as viable as Trump's, you know, at this point, who, who can really say? But I think that's the concern right now if you're Trump or you're the Republicans is that, you know, Trump seems to really be limiting himself in terms of how he can win. And there seem to be just, you know, kind of emerging avenues for how Joe Biden can find that path to 270. Well, while he still hasn't have a veep, that's another key thing. Veep sticks. Yeah. And obviously that'll be another huge factor to watch this summer as well. You know, he, he said yesterday during a fundraiser that he's hoping to have that choice by August 1st. And I think, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast, whoever he picks, I think will also say a lot about what path he wants to pursue. Does he go with, you know, more of a progressive like Elizabeth Warren to, to shore up that base and potentially win over some of the Bernie Sanders supporters who are still more skeptical of him? Does he go with a Kamala Harris to help boost black turnout in, in Milwaukee and Philadelphia and Detroit? Or does he go with someone like an A.B. Klobuchar who can maybe help bring over some of the more white working class voters in those Midwestern states? I think that that'll be a big tell in the coming months to see. You know, there are a number of ways right now, I think, that the Biden campaign can could see getting to 270. But what is what is, you know, the strongest and the best path? Because that's another thing we learned from 2016, right, is, you know, a lot of people thought Hillary Clinton was going to be able to reach into a lot of these other states that aren't, weren't necessarily traditional battlegrounds before locking down some of those key blue wall states. So, uh, so that'll be interesting to, to, to see how that plays out over the summer. I, I just think the overall takeaway is you don't want to, to over predict. You don't want to read too much, particularly no. read into it too much with this president. But look, April and May have not gone the way that they had hoped a year ago in, in the reelection campaign. And there are obvious reasons for that that are beyond their control. But I think even even beyond that, again, instead of trying to manage this crisis in the best way politically for him, it, it hasn't always worked out of that. At least that's that's the view from here. And it seems like it, it, it has put them in a, in a difficult position as, as the summer begins and the real campaigning begins as he tries to, to, to try to change this race against Joe Biden, which right now, again, I don't think is going great for him. That seems like as good a segue as any for our, our next topic, Joe Biden, who has spent most of the time since the, the pandemic began and when he won the Democratic nomination, those two things happened almost simultaneously, of course, staying in his basement, doing mostly safe campaign events, avoiding the kind of gaffes that he is infamous for in even Democratic circles. But I got to say, last week, that streak finally ended. And what I consider just personally like a first ballot Hall of Fame gaffe, the kind that we are going to, to remember, I think, when we think of gaffes in, in the coming years, you know, when he said on a, in a popular morning radio show that, quote unquote, you ain't black if you're thinking of supporting Donald Trump right now. This is a comment that is offensive in some, some very obvious ways, particularly to a lot of many African-American Republicans. And it reignited, I think, controversies on a couple of fronts. One, it really reminds everyone that Joe Biden is, is, is prone to saying dumb things on the campaign trail, right? I mean, this was his MO even when he was Barack Obama's vice president. There are a lot of political concerns. Who knows what he was going to say when he was out in public? 
But I also think the comments brought a lot of fresh scrutiny to his relationship with the African-American community. To get a few things out of the way to, to start with here, I don't think that this gaffe in and of itself is, is going to significantly affect that vote, right? I mean, few, few individual gaffes always receive a lot of attention, rarely move a lot of public opinion. And I should say that he is also going to win, of course, an overwhelming share of the black vote. I think we can stipulate those two things at first. But moving, moving forward, you know, look, him winning an overwhelming share of the African-American vote isn't necessarily enough. You know, there is a big difference between him winning 90% of the black vote and 85% of the African-American vote. It matters in states like North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, just about any battleground state you can pick, whether or not, you know, Biden's margins with the African-American community could mean the difference between winning and losing. And, and Adam, this is, this is my question to you is, on those margins, big picture right now, how much concern is there whether or not Joe Biden can hit the same kind of level of support and turnout that we saw from someone like Barack Obama in 2008, 2012? Yeah, I, th- I think that, that concern was there even before this comment. I mean, Alex, you and, and other, others have, have uh, written about that already, this, this campaign. And you've seen it in some of, you know, some of the recent public polling that a lot of the uh, places where Joe Biden has the most room to grow is still among black voters, you know, still a decent amount of undecided or, you know, or don't support either him or Trump. At, at this stage in the race. So, you know, clearly, you know, Democrats have had some concern, particularly with younger black men about are we going to be able to fully bring them into the fold? And normally the concern, you know, for, for Democrats among black voters would be, you know, we just need to get them to the polls because otherwise, you know, there's a concern that they would stay home. Trump and the Republicans, and I think some Democrats would agree that there's actually a little bit of an opportunity for them to, to win over some of those uh, particularly younger black men. And like you were talking about, Alex, just cut into those margins a little bit, right? We're not talking about Trump somehow winning the black vote, but if it's, you know, 85-15 versus 90-10, that makes a huge difference in these in these battleground states that are only decided by by a couple thousand votes. But I think the other side of that is so so there is this this opportunity, and certainly Joe Biden's gaffing doesn't do anything to to help him. I don't think necessarily there. But from the other side of that, you know, what is Trump actively doing in order to actually you know get these voters to to cast a ballot affirmatively for him? And I think you know it, it's not entirely clear that you know he has a successful strategy to do that yet. And I think. You know, one thing that really stuck out to me this week, I think if he really wanted to, to make a strong play for that vote, why hasn't he been a little more out in front, you know, with, with some of these racially charged, in, you know, instances that have been dominating the news in the past few weeks, right? You know, we haven't heard him say all that much on George Floyd in, in Minnesota. He, he sent a couple tweets about it, but we haven't heard him, you know, make any sort of other public statements about that. You know, it seems like, you know, there are opportunities there, you know, where he could sort of step up and, and use his bully pulpit to be a leader and, and say, you know, I'm going to stand up for, for, for black people in this country. So I think clearly the events of this past week aren't going to, you know, swing a bunch of voters in, in one direction or the other. But I think what, you know, sort of the past week has indicated is that, yeah, there is, you know, a decent chunk of the black vote that's still undecided. They may stay home. They may vote for Biden. Trump maybe has an opportunity to, to, uh, to make some inroads there. But both campaigns still have a lot of work to do. And they can't just take those voters for, for granted. Yeah, I mean, Francesca, to, to piggyback off Adam's point just now, I mean, I think, you know, look, obviously Biden won the Democratic primary because he had the, the strong support of the African-American community. It was where his turnaround started in South Carolina. It started with Jim Clyburn's endorsement and the support he had from African-Americans there. But the question we're asking, it's not about middle-aged or older African-Americans. I mean, I think by and large, Biden is going to win them in, in huge shares and in the level of support that he needs to. We're really focusing on younger 
uh, African Americans, where look, a lot of a, a lot of them supported Bernie Sanders in the primary. A lot of them hold it against Joe Biden. A lot of the policies that he has advocated for over his very long career in public service, most notably the, the 1994 crime bill, or they just see him as part of a, a political establishment that has not delivered for their community over the, the preceding decades. So that, that that's what we're talking about, right? This isn't a question of whether or not older African-Americans are going to support him. This is really a question of younger, and, and as Adam mentioned, really younger black men, whether or not they're going to support Joe Biden and the numbers that he needs. So a few things. So for, for President Trump, you know, he does have an opportunity here, as Adam said, but it's fraught because of the first half of the discussion that we had. Part of the reason that you haven't seen President Trump get up and talk about what's going on in the black communities this week is because in order to do that, he'd essentially have to take a myriad of other questions from reporters. And on Monday when he, you know, he did that, he's getting asked about Joe Scarborough. He's getting asked about moving the convention out of North Carolina. You know, it, it, he gets asked all these other questions that often he, you know, he blamed that on the media that distract from what he wants to talk about, but it but it really sums back to the things that he's tweeting and they're following up on the things that he's tweeting, asking for additional details. And so th- that's part of the reason why he hasn't taken up that, that opportunity to talk about this. Like yesterday when he was leaving to go to Florida, he didn't take questions. And, and that's part of the reason why he doesn't sometimes. When it comes to the things he could do to, to improve his standing with the African-American community, COVID-19 is a really excellent example. And the White House just just based on the sources I've talked to, just absolutely mishandled the situation. They did not engage with black leaders early on the way that they could have and they should have, and they have made attempts to do that since, but we're still waiting to see any sort of a policy from them on how to reduce the number of COVID deaths and spread in the African-American community and what they plan to do, the investment they said that they're going to make, both economically and health-wise in that community. The White House you know, continues to say that it's something that they're working on, but my point being that despite Right, all of the early reporting and and attention focused on this, they still haven't actually done that. Privately, they are working in states to encourage them to increase testing in low income communities, but but they haven't really right put a like a, a national spotlight on that specific angle uh, and use the bully pulpit, as Adam was saying, to do that. On a campaign point, before we move on here, I just also wanted to say that you do see that the Trump campaign and the president seem to recognize that he he does have a problem, though, and that he needs to just overall start to turn this around because you did see that huge shakeup in the communications department where he brought in a new press secretary who had been the spokesperson for the Trump campaign. She has a lot been a lot more aggressive from the podium than we, we've seen recently. I mean, certainly we were having briefings at all before that, but but she is getting up there, right? And and every single day comes in clearly with a plan, hoping that they'll get to one of these questions so that she can just like smack down the media. And they are, you know, turning that into a clear reelection strategy here as well. And so you don't have that kind of shake up this point six months before a presidential election unless you, you, you think that something needs to change and you think that you need someone more political in there to do it. Yeah, Adam, I don't think this is going to be the first time that we talk about a, a Joe Biden gaffe. On the campaign trail, it is it is <laughs> no. a, a time honored tradition for political reporters to fixate on these things. And and as I said earlier, I mean Biden has a long history and career of making these kinds of statements that generate a lot of controversy. I, I guess the, the the question is whether or not it's it's going to be overhyped. You know whether or not these comments or the perception that Biden. Let let me ask you the question this way, because I think this is a little bit more interesting. The perception that Biden says a lot of off off the cuff 
dumb or controversial things. Is that really going to hinder him in this election? Do you really think that that maybe, if nothing else, convinces the his campaign and his team of advisors to maybe hold him back from the public a little bit? Maybe don't engage with Donald Trump in an unstructured way, in the way that maybe we would see some of the other presidential candidates, if they had won the nomination, that they would have engaged Trump? Or, or do you think it's just all overhyped? Yeah, I mean, I know I certainly think that, you know, that's obviously something that his campaign has to be mindful of. And it's, I think, one of the reasons why they don't mind that he's been, been kind of confined to his basement for the first stage of this general election campaign, where he's not necessarily in the spotlight every day because, you know, he's not getting the scrutiny from the media every day and certainly not from Trump every day. And, you know, by all the factors that we've been discussing, you know, things seem to be going pretty well for him. But as things do start to open up and he does start to do more interviews and, you know, at, you know, at, a, at a certain point, you know, if he's going to be able to reappear on the public campaign trail, and that's certainly something that I think, you know, uh, the Biden campaign is going to have to keep in mind. It's just a question of, you know, he's going to have these gaffes that drive the news cycle for, you know, a day or two. You know, he's, you know, even with you know his comments last week, you know, he pretty quickly apologized and sort of snuffed that out just because, you know, just the way the news cycle, you know, moves now. It's, you know, we're, we're just so, so far beyond that. So I think the question is, you know, it's almost certain, right, that he's going to have some sort of verbal stumble now between now and November. It's just a question of, is this something that is going to really be enough particularly when stacked up against everything else that's going on with the economy, with coronavirus, with what Trump is tweeting or saying on a daily basis, right? Just how does that all stack up? So, you know, I do think, you know, his gaffes do tend to get overhyped a little bit. And on the flip side, you know, I think his sort of off the cuff, you know, remarks that maybe show a little bit of authenticity, that's something that some voters like about about Joe Biden, too. So I think there's sort of a balance you, the campaign is going to have to strike there with, you know, at a certain point, he is going to need to get on the campaign trail and interact with voters, in a way that isn't just through, you know, a video screen like like we're doing now and have some of those more personable moments because that that is when he can be at his strongest as well, at, you know, but then on the flip side he can also uh, trip up and, and it can be a, a weakness of of, of his you know, just his abilities as, as a politician. So, I think it it'll be a balancing act for the campaign for sure. Well, like I said, I think it is a topic we will be revisiting maybe early and often <laughs> during this general election. Uh, so something to keep an eye out for. Uh, before we go, we are going to turn to what is my favorite segment every week where Adam and Francesca are going to tell you, the listeners, something fresh, new, original, or interesting from their reporter's notebook. Francesca, you're up first. Well, I want to stay with the economic theme that we've been we've been following, because I do think that the economy is, is just going to be huge. And so one one thing that the White House has been looking at is ways to get direct payments or incentives to businesses, anything to jumpstart this economy. And and they're still they're still considering options. But over the past week, unemployment has been a huge issue. The unemployment numbers just keep continuing to rise. And what do you do about that? And so one thing that Democrats have been pushing is this idea of six hundred dollar a week benefit for workers that's supposed to expire in July. And they would like to see that extended. But the White House has told me that they are adamantly against it. It could still happen. It could still happen, they say. But that's not what they want to see happen here. But it puts this the White House in this uncomfortable position of saying, OK, well, if they don't want to just give jobless workers the, the, you know, a $600 benefit, what can they do then to, to try and, and jumpstart this economy? And so that's that's something they still haven't quite figured out the answer to and they're sort they're starting to run out of time in june they will have to make a decision one way or another about whether or not they want to have another economic stimulus package and what they would like to see in it and what they would like to see in it will make all of the difference here and it will certainly be a major issue generally but also i think in this election yeah i i would just say i mean that is absolutely one of the most 
important decisions that will be made, politically speaking, between now and the general election, really is as important as anything that we discussed today, I would think. What that second bailout uh, looks like, how much help it provides, and the public's reaction to it could be, could be really critical. Great stuff, Francesca. Adam, what do you got? Well, you know, I was going to use my, my TV ad nugget as my end of the show segment here. So I'm going to have to pivot to a story that our colleague Dave Katneys wrote uh, just yesterday I thought was really interesting. And, you know, obviously, you know, sort of one of the big overarching debates about this campaign is sort of, you know, do campaigns lean into more of a base turnout strategy or more of a persuasion strategy for those, you know, undecided voters? And that's even something we talked a little bit about when um, we were discussing Trump's strategy for, for the election. And I think what Dave's story really illuminates is just like, you know, how small that, you know, group of truly undecided and persuadable voters is. When you look at polls, you know, the, the numbers really vary for how many voters are undecided. And a lot of it has to do with the way the pollsters, you know, conduct their polls and how they push respondents, you know, kind of one way or another, because a lot of people who say that they're undecided or that they're independent often, you know, still lean, you know, Democratic or Republican more times than not. So, uh, you know, Dave, in, in talking with both the Biden and the Trump campaigns, you know, they both kind of agree that it's really only about 5% of the electorate that is truly up for grabs at this point. And obviously, that's going to take up a lot of their their resources and attention over the next few months, because, you know, obviously, you know, turning out your base, you know, as we talked about, you know, Trump doing, you know, riling up conservatives on Twitter, you know, Joe Biden, as we talked about, you know, trying to maybe help close the gap with black voters with progressives, you know, obviously, you know, this is going to be the pivotal group, these undecided voters and, you know, Trump and Biden are both very heavily targeting them. Just kind of keep keep that number you know in mind as, as you're kind of looking at various polls. It's really probably only about five percent of the electorate here that that is you know truly on the fence. And chances are they're not going to decide until a couple of days before before the election. Yeah, I mean I think that's just the truth of, of modern elections, right? I mean that pool of truly undecided mm-hmm. voters seems to shrink with with every election, even with yeah. Trump sending something of a resetting the the political tables between the, the, the two parties a little bit. Even then, it seems like, you know, it's just campaigns are more and more focused on turnout, right? That's that's where the, the real but, action yeah, it's, lies. In a general, believe it or not, yeah, believe it or not, we're living in a very hyper-partisan environment. I don't know if you guys uh, have, have realized that, but I have, uh, <laughs> people I have are very dug once, in. <laughs> I have heard that once or twice before. Okay, mine is uh, just highlighting a quick poll that I found really interesting anyway. We've talked about Arizona as a quintessential swing state, uh, both at a presidential and at a Senate level, uh, where Mark Kelly is taking on the incumbent Republican Senator Martha McSally there. A new poll released this week showed Biden with a small couple of point lead on, on Donald Trump. That in itself was, was, was noteworthy, right? I mean, that Biden is going to win Arizona, that would suggest he is in a really strong position to win the overall general election. But maybe even more interesting in this poll, the Democratic candidate, again, Mark Kelly, beating Martha McSally by a huge margin, actually eight points larger than what Joe Biden was leading Donald Trump by. He is up in this poll 51% to uh, 41% to Martha McSally, really underscoring some of the concerns that the White House has had about her as a candidate and concerns that she's already in a, in a position that she can't recover from in her race, even though... I know it's early, but if you're down 10 points and you're an incumbent senator in a battleground state, that's an awfully bad sign. Uh, so just really underscoring, I think, the opportunity that Democrats see that they have in a place like Arizona. Yeah, I'm surprised by how, how, how quickly 
things have moved in, in that state. And, uh, and we should have listened to Dave, you know, a couple weeks ago when he was telling us that that Senate race, it's not a toss up. It's actually lean Democrat. The recent polling has proven him, I think, correct on, on that point. <laughs> okay. That does it for this week's show. I want to thank Adam and Francesca for coming on. Great job as always, guys. Yeah, of course. Thanks guys. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.